Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Okay, welcome back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that's got Jesus worrying about his flock. That is Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the only history of the devil on the internet. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my theological partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Hello, hello. What are we, <laughs> what are we doing today, Travis? We're moving to the other side of North Africa, this time to Alexandria in Egypt, around the same time Tertullian was writing in Algeria, or what is now Algeria, to talk about one of the most controversial theologians of all time, and one of my personal favorites, Let's hear it for Origin of Alexandria. And the crowd goes wild. And most promising for us is that the this controversy we're going to talk about has a lot to do with how Origin thought about the devil, or at least how folks interpreted him to be talking about the devil. Yeah, there's layers there. It's like how he interpreted, how he was interpreted, interpret. Yeah, there's a lot of layers. But we'll start off with the basics. Um, his biography is revealing for some of the things we'll get into, I think. Um, he's born into a Christian family in 185 of the Common Era, um, so he's not a convert. Uh, his teacher, Clement of Alexandria, was um, going from sort of, I guess, middle Platonism to uh, Orthodox Christianity. Origen's father was a martyr, and apparently Origen was like all go dad, you know, urging him on to martyrdom, which is something that is maybe shows us the gap between where we are in terms of our uh, common sense, cultural sensibilities and where the uh, second, second century Christians of North Africa were. Origen, uh, the name Origenes means child of Horus, the Egyptian god. So that's that's pretty cool, and in some ways, it's interesting considering he was Christian that he has that that kind of name. I, I would it would be interesting to know, learn more about naming practices and 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 in this context. His nickname was Adamantius, and of course, being I'm not a I'm, I can't claim like huge nerddom because I'm not like you know like stacking like copies of X Men comics that were untouched and in perfect mint condition. But you know, I thought of Wolverine like pretty quickly with the the claws and stuff. Um, so yeah, that was that's a sticking point. Uh, the name also means uh, untamable. Um, it has a sense of like being indestructible, but also untamable, and that kind of uh, portends how problematic and controversial origin will be. So I just want to question this self-effacing characterization of yourself, Klaus, as not being a nerd. Some might argue that co-hosting this podcast would give you nerd credentials. I'm just gonna say it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there, there's there's some there's some way to claim it, but uh, I think the 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 sort of normative nerds are like uh, huge Trekkies and huge comic book people. Um, but okay, that that is def that is definitely fair. Yeah, that is fair. Yeah, so we're like we're like a weird we're like a weird you know endangered species of of nerddom or something. I don't know. Perhaps we'll we'll let our fans decide. Um, please tweet us about that. So as a young man. Let's let's talk a little bit more about Origen. As a young man, Origen sought martyrdom for himself. So he had just encouraged his dad to do this. Now it's his turn, he thinks. So he's like hoping to kind of burst onto the street and declare himself a Christian. Because remember at the time, that's kind of all you had to do to get martyred. But 
his mother, brilliant woman that she was, hid his clothing. And so he could either go out into the street naked and declare himself a Christian, or he could stay home and not die. And apparently he was too embarrassed to go, you know, become a martyr in his birthday suit. (laughs) I went to a pool party for July the 4th yesterday, and I, I have to say I kind of get it. Sometimes a swimsuit feels like not enough fabric. So I'm with you, Origin. Don't feel bad. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there are historians who are skeptical about how intense the persecutions were um, at this period. But yeah, it's a great story. We're always dealing with uh, things that might be apocryphal, um, but it's still, it's it's an incredible story. And I'm glad you could make that that personal connection to the 4th of July party, um, our our civil religion uh, observance that you partook of uh, at a pool party. So we're thinking about Alexandria for a second. It's, we talked about it on the show before, um, in the demonization episode with the the lynching of Hypatia. So yeah, go back to that one if you need to get your background in. But it's the center of ancient learning, and it has like a really famous library that gets destroyed, Temple of Set. And Origen, uh, as a bright young person in this environment, gets a pan-Hellenistic philosophical education, which sort of just means like he was exposed and well-schooled in different different ancient Greek philosophies like the philosophy of Aristotle, the philosophy of Plato, the philosophy of the Stoics, um, probably to a certain degree, the philosophy of the Epicureans. Um, the, but the, the Platonism is, is really important. And in, in particular, we're at this, this period of uh, Plato's scholarship called Middle Platonism. And so that seems to be a really significant influence. And at certain points, um, sometimes, and I, I think I've been taught this, uh, that Origins like almost more of a Plotinist than a Christian. And I think there's a pushback against that trend of thinking about origin um, and actually more attention being given to the very sorts of Christian practices of interpreting scripture and his sort of theological views. Um, and I think it's, it's appropriate. This sort of like, oh, like he's just a Christian, he's just a, he's just a Plotinist dressed up in Christian drag is like sort of not really very fair to what you can actually find on the page. Yeah, I agree with that assessment um you can't really read for example what we're well actually i don't want to give away too much right now but we are going to be getting into the peri archon and i don't think you can read particularly book four and really take those claims seriously it's not window dressing the christianity is definitely not window dressing here anyway so during the i'm going to call it decian but I hope someone will tweet me the proper pronunciation. I think it's a Decian. That's what I think. I've heard Decian. That's what I said. That's what I said, Klaus. <laughs> I said Decian. I live by. I grew up by. I grew up by a battery factory called Deca. So when you said Decian, I was like, oh, it's like the the, the battery persecution. Um, yeah. <laughs> we only plug things in from now on. No batteries allowed. Yeah. <laughs> During the Decian persecution, then Origen was tortured nearly to death, but he didn't break. Um, he died, however shortly thereafter in the year 253 from his wounds. And so this is really sad news for Origen because if he had died right then while they were torturing him, he would be counted a martyr, which comes from the Greek word for witness. So a witness to the faith, to Christianity through his death in a mimesis, an imitation of Christ's death, right? But he doesn't get that status because he hangs on for a few days later. And so he's only categorized as what's called a confessor, like Maximus the confessor, famously. Anyway, so 
had he died a martyr, this probably would have insulated his views from being critiqued as heretical. But because he was only a confessor, people felt free in the coming sort of very shortly after his death to challenge his works. A lot of his works then get suppressed and we have difficulty accessing them as a result. Yeah, uh, and part of the uh, war on origin is uh, some slighting of his character. And I don't know if you actually would even, even want to count what I'm about to you know, recount as an example of that, but it's like one of the most uh, notorious facets of his biography that he allegedly castrated himself to literally live out Jesus' words about there being eunuchs in the kingdom of heaven. Um, this this is uh, referenced in uh, Eusebius's Church History, uh, which was written decades after Origen's death. Uh, so there's there is a gap, um, but even one of Origen's harshest critics, um, Epiphanius, reports that he cannot actually confirm the story. So it's like, I don't know. Sometimes it just seems like nasty rumor. Um, and one of the historians of the devil that we that we fall back on, uh, Forsyth, um, he has this quip that it doesn't really make sense for someone who was so invested in building up and enriching the interpretation of the Bible with like allegorical, spiritual, different levels of interpretation to be such a literalist when it comes to this uh, moral injunction or this image in the, in the Bible. And I do appreciate that, that observation. On the other hand, though, like who hasn't made a decision that they later regret, uh, even if they get known for a certain kind of adhering to a certain set of principles. So I don't want to like toss it out out of hand as impossible because of his style of scriptural interpretation, etc. But I do think it's a clever argument and there isn't good enough evidence. Also, we've been looking around for evidence of someone's castration and it turns out no one has found any missing, missing testicles. And so I feel like that, you know, it's a very hard thing to prove. I just thought I should note. But I, I do think we should pause for a moment and talk a little about Origen's innovations in the realm of biblical interpretation, because it's so important for what he leaves for us. Okay, so, so one of the things he's famous for is the Hexapla, which is a compilation of the Hebrew Bible with six versions of the text lined up together. You've got the Hebrew text, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew text, the third sort of textual version is the Septuagint, and then three other Greek translations by Jewish and Ebionite scholars. And we want to keep this simple for now, but to paraphrase an old teacher of ours, Charlie Stang, Origen saw the literal level of scripture, the story and its basic facts, as the mere icy surface of a deep glacial pond we're skating over when we read. But if we trip on a crack, in other words, if we're struck by something weird in the text, an infelicity, if you will, a contradiction, for example, then we can peer down into the abyss of meaning beneath. So it's sort of a happy trip, if you will. Like when you, you're tripping, but then you catch yourself and you pretend, you're like, oh, no, I meant to do that. I'm just skipping here for no reason. That's what we're talking about. But then you fall into the abyss. Okay, side note, I'm worried that Charlie Stang's go-to metaphor here is about ice skating over the abyss and that the goal is to fall into the abyss. Charlie, are you okay? Um, then again, wait until we get to the 13th century where the abyss is going to make a huge comeback, but minus the ice skating. 
Okay, so one example of this hermeneutic that Origen is famous for is how there are two creation stories in Genesis. And Origen saw this apparent defect, right, as showing us how God created us as rational essences in the first story. And then in the second story, well, that's when God formed material bodies for us. So it all kind of makes sense in his, in his interpretation. Yeah, no, that's totally amazing. Um, you've been known to dabble in medieval theology, Travis. Would you say that what Origen brings to the table here is at all very influential? On the whole, yes, it is very influential, but in sort of strange ways. So in, in part, no, and you'll see what I mean. So the part about the literal level not always working and then triggering us to some sort of allegorical or spiritual interpretation, that part does have legs. That said, much hay is made about Origen's three levels of meaning in scripture, according to the body, the soul, and the spirit. But the thing is, Origen himself doesn't adhere to his own distinctions in his practice of interpreting the Bible. He lays out this theory, but, you know, if you try and, because we do have a lot of his um, commentaries on scripture, and it's not always quite that way. Weirdly for me, though, people like Aquinas will later also delineate little lists of the levels of scriptural interpretation. And if I'm remembering right, Aquinas has four. But anyway, I'm much more concerned with the practice of interpreting scripture than the kind of genealogy of how many levels you have. Uh, for many medieval exegetes, allegory was a privileged way to read the Bible, fanciful as it seems to modern ears. Uh, and if you're interested for a deep dive on the vast distances between literal and allegorical readings, I would highly recommend a text by Hildegard of Bingen called, and translated now into English by Beverly Kingsley called The Gospel Homilies of Hildegard of Bingen. They are legit wild. You think you're reading about, you know, one thing and Hildegard takes it to a completely different place. And it the meaning of the text changes wildly as a result of this style of what is perceived as divinely inspired interpretation of the Bible. In spite of Origen's hefty influence on both ways of actually interpreting scripture and theories of the same, he ran into some trouble. He was not exactly cozy with another patristic heavyweight, the Latin translator of scripture, St. Jerome. Yeah, and we're not going to bore you with all of those details, though I do think, side note, um, looking more into how diabology works in Jerome would be an interesting homework assignment for us to do. We'll leave their bickering to the side for right now. But basically, we're not going to talk about it, but we are, I guess, we're going we're gonna to fall into that trap, into that icy pond. Origen's methods and his influence are pretty formidable, qualified as that may be, which Travis was getting at. And I think that there is a sense that people were anticipating how interesting and how influential Origen could be. And there was basically professional intellectual jealousy at play. That's that's the sense I have. So Origen kind of looked like he was getting too much attention to his local bishop with these bold theological moves that we'll get into in a little bit. And so he could never get ordained as a priest. This was so interesting now. I feel like the different churches are having these uh, vocational crises. And, you know, and of course, conservatives would be like, oh, back in the day, they were dying to be traced, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, Origen, Origen wanted to be and couldn't be. Um, but he ends up moving to uh, Caesarea in Palestine uh, to get away from this meddling bishop. And he he's doing a lot of work there as a presbyter or as a church elder. So he does sort of manage to get a little bit up the uh, a hierarchy of 
I guess just sort of, I, I don't really know the details about what kind of church it was, but like, if it's like, you know, some sort of like small, you know, diocesan church or something, I don't know. It's, it was probably different back then, but nearly three centuries later, he's declared a heretic, which is kind of a, a long, I guess it's not unprecedented. Um, it may have been unprecedented for the time uh, to, uh, to be, to for, for someone 300 years later to be like, that guy was full of shit. <laughs> But a lot of his ideas are, are really influential. Like around the Trinity, he ha- he's thinking through the complexity of thinking of a triune God. Um, what he ends up with is not what they came up with a few centuries later or a century later, you know, but it's still pointing in that direction. Um, and so, he, of course, he never gets a day in court to try to argue his case. He does have these exchanges and these letters where he's engaging in the controversies around his work. But because of just the the amount of the, of his works that we've lost and uh, translation issues and misrepresentations and polemical representations, it's pretty hard to sort out. Okay, okay. But let's get to the good part, Klaus. One of the ideas that Origen and his followers were accused of having was universalism, the universal salvation of all beings, including demons and the devil himself. This is where things get really interesting. But you're, okay. you're right. This is like one of the most controversial ideas, which is apocatastasis. What a great word, right? Say that three times fast. Apocatastasis, apocatastasis, apocatastasis. Um, <laughs> it means the restoration of everything. Um, well, we're in a fight now um, because uh, Charlie, the, the aforementioned Charlie Stang pronounces it apocatastasis. So I, I, I don't really know. But anyway, I just thought I would throw that in. So you, you can, yeah. yeah, you can say whatever you want to. Uh, for me, it's about like, okay. it's right. like just breaking up the parts like apocata state. You know, those are all words that I know. So I put them, I decided to say them. I pronounce them all. I them. think yours make, yours makes more sense, frankly, but I'm still not going to change because then I would be losing the argument. Mm-hmm. So good, please good, continue. Good, good. Um, but we keep talking about how Origen's accused of universalism, but it's all a little bit fuzzy though, right? Yeah, and that's because when they label you a heretic before there's even a printing press, it's actually really hard for your writings to stay in circulation because either people are using your books, well, manuscripts, as kindling or less dramatically, they just aren't being copied out. You know, when your manuscript gets old in the monastery and it's time for Brother Frank (laughs) to do his work for the day. And he's like, oh, no, we don't need that origin. That's been declared heretical. And so that happens all over. And then these manuscripts become more rare. And here we are, you know, centuries later. And we just don't have a lot of copies. And that matters because the fewer copies of something you have, the less stable your text is the less sure you are that you're getting something close to what the writer originally intended. Um, because remember, this is all being done by hand. Um, so, you know, if the whiff of heresy touches your works, it's a lot less likely that they're going to be copied and preserved. Origen did have his supporters, though, and one, Rufinus, translated a really significant statement of Origen's big ideas called the Peri Archon, or on the first principles, as it's usually translated. But we only have some of it in the original Greek, and we're missing a lot of the other things that he wrote. And he wrote a lot. (laughs) Uh, He was one of the most prolific authors of his age, in fact. We're talking about hundreds of separate works, a lot of biblical commentaries, of which we do still have some. So the problem is that much of what we do have is mediated by translation, 
which isn't always bad, but yeah, for the sake of argument, we'll say, yeah, it's not an immediate grasp of the ideas as he expressed them in his native language. And a lot of his most controversial ideas are most widely known by the way Origen's enemies represented them in their denunciations. Um, so yeah, like this is this is a real problem. Uh, and in some, some cases, especially the way that most people have been taught origins uh, on the first principles in the 20th and 21st century, this uh, translation by uh, Kutschall, uh, a German scholar, they, he put together, he basically thought that Rufinus was suppressing the originality of a lot of origins ideas. And so like kind of padded them with some of the stuff that, that origins enemies were saying about him as a way to fill out what Kutschau in this kind of circular way thought was the authentic origin, but it's like sort of you're creating the heretic that you were already told about. So it's confirmation bias. So recently, and we'll, we'll talk about more about this scholar later, but this guy, John Baer, he has done this new rendering that is just Rufinus's Latin translation. There, there is a book, it's book four, I believe that is in origins Greek. Uh, so there is some stuff that we do have. There's a lot of problems of, of mediation and reception that we're dealing with. Yeah. And with, with a certain respect for that instability of the text, um, I do want to press on to one of the most interesting issues, I think, for us, which is Origen's reputation as being one of the most influential writers when it comes to describing the devil. And this does have a lot to do with one of the big things he gets slammed for by his enemies, which is the notion of the pre-existence of souls prior to incarnation, or even the transmigration of souls. Again, I, that sort of platonic reputation I was talking about before. And this applies to the devil and to the fall in general. Yeah, and it, this isn't just the kind of fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis as uh, the cosmic slip into trial and tribulation for humanity. Origen's idea seems to be that the fall of both what would become human souls and angels and demons and the devil himself happens prior to incarnation and is indeed the cause of materiality itself. Take a minute for that because that is a big, super important idea. Um, this isn't about angels falling or humans falling, as we've talked about with many of the thinkers before, but the fall of something prior, uh, these sort of pure intellectual essences that are contemplating God in this pre-fall world. That's where we start things out for origin. Yeah, it's 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 a pre-anthropomorphic in a certain way. It's like it's it's like although yes. I guess the idea of an intellectual essence and thinking is itself kind of anthropomorphic, but yeah. Um and that sort of sounds like maybe gnostic adjacent a little bit to what we've talked about before. And what you just described is the standard reading of Origen's creation account and a lot of the scholarship we've looked at on the history of the devil. Um, and scholar and translator just mentioned John Baer recently gives a different account of what's going on here. For Baer, Origen is a thoroughly apocalyptic theologian. And whenever you ask about the beginnings of things, the genesis of something in his thought, like the beginnings of angels, the beginnings of human beings, or the devil, you can't begin to answer that question without thinking about the ending. And so like the ending and the beginning really go together for origin. And this is kind of, with all due respect to what we just talked about with Catherine Keller, Bear does seem to think that for origin, there is a kind of single ending in the apocalyptic theology. Right. Even if it's complicated by its relationship to the beginning, which I do think Keller would be interested in as another way of rethinking, you know, 
the the temporality of of apocalypse yeah I, I agree i think so yeah yeah well for me bear's perspective really works because we're talking about uh neoplatonic structure of emanation and return so the end has to look like the beginning hence the importance of apocalypticism to his account of creation and materiality yeah i think and and we'll talk about it, i think later when we evaluate um how origin treats the devil um but i do think what's interesting and what bear is picking up on there in the apocalyptic reading of origin is how um out of the human perspective you have to go to begin to get a grip on on uh, these sort of doctrinal issues that it isn't this sort of linear account that it, it, it's really recursive it's really time as a flat circle kind of thing and it's a different way of doing theology than what we've seen so far so just to make sure that we're clear about what we've been talking about when it comes to the creation of the world origin is a little different than most of the thinkers we've talked about so far in the pod. He envisions that before the creation of the earth, human beings, materiality, etc., there were these souls or minds that were contemplating God. That was their full-time job. And they got distracted, but they got distracted in in different levels, if you will. Some some folks just got a little bit distracted and those became the angels. Those who became a little bit more distracted, those became human beings. And those who became much more distracted became demons. The one soul who became the most distracted became our favorite, the devil. So that's a little bit of an orientation to the creation of humanity, the creation of the world, according to origin. Yeah, and I think the thing that Bear does with that is um, he makes it Christocentric. So uh, you don't have to go all the way to the end of the apocalypse to understand the beginning of everything for Bear's reading of Origin. Um, you have to go to the Passion of Christ. The Mel Gibson movie? Please tell me no. <laughs> the Mel Gibson movie and the, uh, the, the the moment in sacred history that changes everything. But yeah. Okay. Um, the, the second one I'm more excited about, to be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's this interesting feature in the Greek and like, wow, like cue the huge nerd siren, uh, bat signal, etc. Um, the word that Origen uses for the fall um, like the fall of the souls that Travis just described, the fall of the intellectual essences is uh, katabole, which is the same word for foundation. Uh, you lay a foundation, or I guess you throw it down in ancient Greek. And this is the same word that appears in Revelation to describe the Lamb of God who has been slain from the foundation of the world. So for Bear, this is really crucial linking between the fall of the souls and the lamb's slaying that goes back to the foundation of the material world. And basically with this linkage, Bear sees the incarnation, especially the passion as sending shockwaves retroactively across time and becoming the scandal that literally lays the foundations for material reality uh, and leads to a kind of more historical chronological time. And so, like, that's why um, when we see, like, in all the textbooks about how the souls fall, like, Bear's account is is really different than that because it's not just like, oh, like, in some time these angels got distracted and, oh, then they fell, then they fell into bodies. It's like, no, it's about the passion of Christ that causes all of these, these intellectual essences to fall. 
This is the best part of Bear's argument. It really complicates that more standard reading that I gave just now of the origins account of creation. But are you saying that the passion of Christ caused the intellectual essences in heaven with, with the Trinity to fall? Uh, and what about chronological time, Klaus? I, I spit upon it. God, God doesn't give a shit about it. Uh, and this gets us into a, a crucial idea from Christology, nerd alert, this uh, Latin phrase, communicatio idiomatum. And all that means is like, what can be said of Christ can be said, what can be said of the incarnate word can also be said and predicated to God. Um, and Bear quotes uh, from Anselm of Can Canterbury, who's a theologian writing much later, uh, to make this point in uh, this book, Why Did God Become Man? Anselm says, when God does anything, once it is done, it is impossible for it not to have been done. But it was always true that it has been done. Uh, and so this is a sense that like, even if we're thinking about time in a chronological sequence, when the passion happens, it retroactively applies for all of time in its sort of infinite uh, scope. Okay, let's pretend like I'm an astrophysicist. The event of the passion is like this star supernovaing and falling in on itself like a black hole, warping and eventually consuming time and space around it. It was always going to happen. It's always already happened. It's always happening again. Am I close? I, I think so. And for me, it seems that Origen is theologizing from or modeling the God's eye view in a way that it's like really it, it, it just the sort of confounding nature of breaking with chronological linear time gets you into that headspace. And, and I think the point for Bear's revisionist account of Origen's theology is we don't get really specific coordinate details about the fall of the devil always in Origen in a kind of blow by blow kind of way because it's it's, it's, it's always happening. It's already happening. It's happening all at once. Um, and and I, so I think that's like part of the confusion of trying to give a really sort of coherent, comprehensive, uh, quick summary of his, his theological ideas. Yeah, I agree. But sometimes I do find that like starting with the bad interpretation or the simplistic interpretation of origin and then deconstructing it is the best way to kind of get at this very complicated world or set of worlds that he creates. So, you know, Origen's ideas get even more complicated when you start thinking about how they're quite connected, not just to the Christological event that destroys time, as we think of it, linear time anyway, but also to liturgy and specifically to ritual, which appears so much throughout Revelation as this linkage between heaven and earth. You know, you've got your angels singing and this continuation, this sort of uh, continuing the, the praises of God through the liturgy, through the prayers, through the ritual. And what I hear Bear saying is that the fall in response to the scandal of the slaughtered lamb is also the ignition, if you will, for the earthly copy of the heavenly liturgy, right? The way that that liturgy extends through the heavenly choirs of angels right down to the, the ecclesia, the church on earth, which continues this liturgy. Which is just to say, even in the fall or slash foundation, the katabole, there's divine compassion, which manifests in the liturgical therapy of souls. Yeah, and it's sort of like uh, Catherine Keller's analysis of the New Jerusalem from our last episode. There is no temple in the city because the whole city is the temple. 
it's almost as if the time, the lifetime or lifetime spent working one's way back to God and all the pain and struggle of life is itself this therapeutic ritual, which I could see having like sort of a reassuring aspect and a kind of a dark aspect too. <laughs> yes. I think all of Origins thought does those things. So, but anyway, we didn't, we never got around to it, Klaus. So the passion is what made the devil fall. Walk me through that one more time. Let's get, let's get into that. Yeah, here again, uh, I think Origins on the cutting edge of diabology. The devil isn't jealous of humans like with Irenaeus, but of God. Uh, and not to be totally anachronistic, but it reminds me of Paradise Lost, when Lucifer's jealousy of Christ, the words crowning glory in heaven, sets him off and leads him to rebellion. Origin is a pioneer in identifying the Prince of Tyre, 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 from Ezekiel and Lucifer from Isaiah as Satan. He's also different from Tertullian, who sees Satan falling from grace around the time of humanity's creation. We did see, though, in some of the authors we read way back, like Justin Martyr, that Satan's fall does precede human creation. But like with Irenaeus and Tertullian, that gets tossed out the window. But there's there's an interesting disagreement about this in the tradition. Yeah. Origen's big on the equal signs between a whole range of characters. And this is making me super nostalgic for our second episode on villains of the Hebrew Bible that we recorded nearly a year ago exactly. A classic episode, and maybe one that we were we were spiritually visited by Origen in our composition of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So what are these equal signs I'm talking about? Well, you got Satan, who is the adversary, right, in, in Hebrew, equals the serpent in the garden, equals the dragon in Revelation 12, equals Leviathan in Job, etc. So Origen is one of the first, if not the first, to really, really hammer that home. Interesting point, though. He's not into the Watcher's myth in the way that Tertullian is just like, right, like going off on it. Uh, he's more liable to read that as an allegory for the intelligent essences uh, who play the role of the angels or the sons of God in the Genesis story, who wanted to live in bodies starring the beautiful daughters of men. Uh, it's a pretty misogynistic allegory. And one that I think he really gets um, a lot of inspiration from his teacher Clement for, who I think Clement is actually a little bit more into the Watchers than, than Origen is. Um, but yeah, interesting to see, again, like these different routes to demonology and diabology, the different choices and different points of emphasis. Yeah, so reducing all of female creation into vessels for the intelligent essences that are men. Hmm, yeah, that misogyny, real shocker. But something I was surprised to learn, in spite of his downgrading of the Watcher's myth, is the role angels, good and bad, play in governing the world. It sounds really familiar after reading Jubilees, Enoch, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Each nation or region is controlled by two angels, one good, one evil, you know, like one on each shoulder. The evil ones cause unjust wars, and their power prompts pagans to venerate them, but not the good angels. In some places, it's clear that Christ's passion has destroyed the power of the bad angels in this regard, even as it tempted them to fall in the first place. But they still seem to retain this role of persecuting and testing humans. Anyone who hasn't reunited with the redeemed human race in Christ is no longer protected by even the good National Guardian angels.
while, in microcosm, there's the psychomachia, or the war of the soul, going on inside of each of us to sort of match up with these angels that are controlling nations and regions of the world. And so we each have our own personal good angel and bad angel, right, like you would see in a stupid cartoon, trying to push us this way or that. Um, though what's really important in Origin is that we're free. Human beings are free. I think all these intellectual essences are free. Um, and so we need to consent. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and so the bad angel may operate by starting off with growth sins like lust. <laughs> but for the more spiritually developed, it's pride that the bad angel uses to tempt us. And that's sort of uh, following on in the footsteps of Satan, I guess, in that, that regard. So Origin isn't really one of these people who thinks that it's lust or it's these other sort of appetitive passions that are driving us into our bodies, I think, if we're following Bear. It's the chain reactions of intellectual essences like Satan being scandalized by the passion and willing their own materialization. So it's less like the Watcher's myth where people, where, where, where you know, sex is being used as this sort of uh, origin of evil and origin of demonic possession. Um, it's still, I think, the main ha- problem... Hashtag is, origin jokes. Hashtag yeah, origin yeah, jokes. Yeah, 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 I know. Endless origin jokes. I think it is, it does mostly go back to, even with materialization, it does go back to the pride of Satan. So what is Satan's role in all of this then? Is he responsible for everyone else's materiality in some sense? Which that is really weird, weird as if... an idea. Like, it's a totally bizarre suggestion. But yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it, it seems particularly weird if the freedom of the will is so important for his ideas about what makes humans and, for that matter, angels and demons tick. Yeah, and some commentators like J.B. Russell have pointed out that maybe the devil isn't even really that necessary for an account of the fall with all this. Like, he doesn't really even feature so much in that interpretation we gave about the passion being the cause of everything falling. There was this one claim that was coming up in the literature about Satan's fall being the cause of materiality, but we struggled for a while to find the actual place in origin in his corpus where this idea was expressed, but... Here it is in his commentary on the Gospel of John uh, and here on the first chapter in particular. So bear with me. There is a beginning in a matter of origin. (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, As might appear in the saying, in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. This meaning, however, appears more plainly in the book of Job in the passage, Job 40, verse 19. This is the beginning of God's creation made for his angels to mock at. And so origin of Alexandria goes on. One would suppose that the heavens and the earth were made first of all that was made at the creation of the world. But the second passage, he's here referring to that Job passage, suggests a better view. Namely, that as many beings were framed with a body, the first made of these was the creature called dragon, but called in another passage from Job, the great whale, that is Leviathan, which the Lord tamed. We must ask about this, whether when the saints were living a blessed life apart from matter and apart from any body, the dragon falling from the pure life became fit to be bound in matter and in a body so that the Lord could say, speaking through storm and clouds, quote, this is the beginning of the creation of God made for his angels to mock at. It is possible, however, that the dragon is not positively the beginning of the creation of the Lord, but that there were many creatures made with a body for the angels to mock, and that the dragon was the first of these, 
while others could subsist in a body without such reproach. But it is not so. So thanks for bearing with that rather long quote from Origen, but I think there's a lot to talk about here. So one is, it, this reminds me in some ways of the accounts of the devil that place the fall of Satan before the fall of humanity, right? Because he's questioning, and it sounds here very much like the language of what if, kind of a wondering here, which is interesting because that's supposed to be how we interpret the periarchon. But this is the commentary on John, and he seems, the language he uses here seems to me, at least in this translation, to be sort of a hypothesis. What do you make of that? Klaus, in terms of the order and how we think about the dragon, Leviathan, this monster, taking a body before human beings take a body. Are we getting a kind of chronology here, despite Bear's theory, or, or not? What do, you, what do you think? Well, I think the, the question of chronology, I mean, I think that you're dealing with, like, plain sense versus different allegorical meanings. So I think that that's one way to deal with that problem. And he does seem to be making this intervention with chronology by saying, like, oh, like, Genesis, you know, we have this account in the beginning um and he's like well to understand the beginning we need to go to this other book the book of job where uh leviathan's the first of god's creation um and so he uses this sort of chain of scriptural citations to put together this argument that the the devil the dragon is the first material creation um and he says it's like what you're saying there is this kind of uh kind of speculative or this kind of open-endedness to what he's saying, where he's like, it's possible that the dragon is not positively the beginning of creation, but there, there are many creatures with a body for the angels to mock. Uh, and that the dragon was the first of these, while others could subsist in a body without such reproach. But no, <laughs> which seems like pretty categorical at the end where it's like, you could think that, but you'd be wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoy that. Okay. So here we were wondering before how the passion caused materiality and here we see a moment where that plays out through the fall into materiality of the dragon or leviathan as the creature for angels to mock because of course he has to work between these scriptural citations as you know the facts around which he's theorizing or theologizing it's in it, am i following that i Do think you, that's is, right does that make sense that makes okay. sense yeah that makes sense and I think it's key, it's interesting to say that the devil or the Leviathan's the first embodied being. If we're going with the bear theory that Christ's passion and incarnation is what right. causes everything to fall, because it's it's Jesus, it's it's God becoming a human being and a material embodied being that causes the first being to become embodied. You know, it's it's this wild again, back to the wild, non-linear way yeah. that it's working. And they're important. There are important distinctions in how that comes about, right? The incarnation of Christ is through the conscious, merciful choice yeah. of yeah. the word, right? And that, very weirdly in origin, causes the embodiment of the dragon, which is so that the angels can make fun of him. <laughs> and the other interesting but, thing is that God makes the body. Like God and God and the, and the angels and the, I guess the word frame the body. And so it's interesting that even as the the devil is being held responsible for this, like the devil still depends on divine agency to get a body, which is a sign of being a lower, lower in the ontological uh, hierarchy. Well, a lot of you have been asking, though, is origin body positive? Yes or no? Klaus, we're, we're looking for you to weigh in first. What do you, what do you have to <laughs> is say Is origin here? body positive? 
Um, I think, I mean, I think insofar as uh, the body is still divinely created uh, in contrast to a plotnist rendering i guess a sort of generic middle plotness rendering i think that it, it, you know it's it's quality it's it's qualified um but insofar as uh humanity is deified by god appearing as a human as a human being an embodied being and insofar as we were talking about life on earth as this sort of extended all-encompassing liturgy of repair and um reconciliation i would say yes but Right, it's not like it's not wildly embracing of like sort of the the appetites and passions of the human body. I would say probably not. Oh well, yeah, that that much we're we're clear on, and I certainly agree with you. I think the details, if I really want to get somewhat serious about that question, the details of the apocatastasis would come into play. What does that return look like in terms of resurrected? bodies or going back to contemplation etc and i'm not so clear on those details but we will be talking more about that that uh restoration of all things later in this episode yeah well we were talking about and and um i'm skipping down a little bit in our outline here but i'm what one of the things we talked about is how um the devil is associated with the sort of mass migration into embodiment but what's confusing is that Satan and the demons are still functioning as spirits. And so we have this kind of contradiction between, oh, like you're the most, as you were talking about before, you're the most materialized, the most distracted or whatever thing there is. Um, and yet, and so, and so like the heaviest, the, the least real, the least being through this primitive account of evil. And yet there's still these spirits who govern, help govern the world, which seems a little bit hard to square. So, like, it's a bit yeah, confusing, that, right? Oh, absolutely. That relationship between the power they're supposed to yield, the importance of, of being disembodied, and the fact of their embodiment. Yeah, that weightiness that drags them down into, into creation, etc. Uh, Well, to risk another anachronism, what if we thought about this in comparison to Dante's Santa Claus, um, to Dante's Satan, who is, as you may recall, trapped in the ice in the lowest region of hell. And so very weirdly an incapacitated Satan who in this depiction refuses what we might have otherwise imagined someone reigning in power on a throne. We see something quite different in Dante. So I wonder about that relationship and uh, to Origins demons who have these bodies but are supposed to be, you know, exercising power over creation. Maybe Origen is even more influential than he gets credit for. You know, if even Dante might have been pulling from him here, who knows? You know, this really sounds like the thing that Giorgio Agamon's going to write a book about or something like the the, the frozen materialized devil or something. I don't know. Uh, stay tuned. But I think it's a really helpful image because it's sort of, it helps us start to understand how origin can assert something so apparently paradoxical that Satan retains the freedom of the will. Um, this, this Which sort of you could see as being uh, analog to the spiritual sense that we've been talking about. Uh, but it's also 
virtually impossible for him to will himself back into God's good graces, which sort of speaks to that more like frozen materialized image that you were speaking of uh, from Dante. Hashtag freedom is an apparatus for producing blameworthiness. But we read this helpful piece by Lisa R. Holiday that helps clarify how this apparatus or trap functions in origin. So we're talking about freedom of the will here, which, you know, we tend to talk about a lot on this pod. You've got a two-tiered conception of willing, the power of the soul over voluntary movements on the one hand, and on the other, what we choose through rational deliberation. So we, one of the questions is, does that distinction make sense? So stay tuned, keep that question in mind. In Greek, that first concept of the will, that is the power of the soul over voluntary movements, is called altechousin. Again, thank you. you're welcome for my amazing Greek accent. The latter literally, quote, that which depends on us, or ephemin, and that the latter here being, let's see, what we choose through rational deliberation. Uh-huh. And that's ephemin. This is the part that humans use to avoid sinning. We need that secondary function of of the will to avoid sinning. Origen uses this, this distinction to clarify everyone's favorite problem about the will and freedom from the book of Exodus, where you've got Pharaoh's responsibility or dangerously his lack of responsibility for his fate. Um, when you get this quote about the Lord hardening his heart, that is the heart of Pharaoh. <sighs> Doesn't it sound like, remember, I don't know, have we talked about this before? But it's this moment mm-hmm. where, yeah, where in these plagues, um, the, the Israelites are supposed to escape um, and from their slavery under Pharaoh. And at the last minute when Pharaoh's like, oh, y'all can go. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to let you go. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh says, never mind. I take it all back. Come back. Takesy-backsies are allowed. So... Yeah, and so he needs to hold on to the idea that even though the language of the text is that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, whereas before it was Pharaoh hardened his heart, as yes. the, as the, as things escalate, the Lord hardens his heart. Yes. Uh, so Origen's committed to a view that Pharaoh is still a free, a free agent and is responsible for his own predicament. And I will love to see how he gets himself out of this, uh, out of the plain sense of the text. Oh, you're gonna love this one. So. Through Moses and Aaron, God is putting Pharaoh to the test. That's all that, quote-unquote, hardening his heart means for Origen. It, it's, it's hard like a final exam in your physics class. The question is, though, what happens if you fail this exam? So God never heartburns away Pharaoh's ability to use reason to deliberate over the proper course of action. But the thing is, just because he has this capacity to make a morally informed, rational deliberation about what he should do, it doesn't mean he's good at it. You take the you take the physics final, but if you didn't study for it all year, you're going to fail. Like, you have the ability to pass it. You have the freedom to pass that test. <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of good that's going to do Sharpen you. that pencil. Yeah. Sharpen that pencil, sit down for that test, take it. Um but for origin, it's like you have to you actually have to work at improving yourself to get good at using your moral faculties. Um, and the calamity that fall, befalls Pharaoh and his kingdom functions pedagogically for origin. It's like you failed that test and you had to go to summer school. It's an opportunity for growth, yes. euphemistically put. Labor-based uh, grading, <laughs> yes. Right. And, you know, it's crazy. I actually... Um, 
a few years ago, I had a student, we were reading Exodus and um, she gave a kind of version of this reading of, of Pharaoh's hardening of his heart, um, a passage, a set of, you know, a set of passages that was scandalous to my, my, my students. Um, and she made this pedagogical argument that God was going to get Pharaoh to the right place in the end through this series of, of exams and chances to better himself. And I was, I found it a bit implausible. <laughs> and now I'm like, man, like you were, I just wasn't on your level. Uh, that is so funny. Klaus, um, do you think she was secret, secretly reading just scads of origin? Is that how this happened? Um, who knows? We'll never know. I seriously doubt yeah. it though. Yeah. Good on her. Well, Good on her. Yeah. But like, what do you think this all means for the devil? Well, like Pharaoh, the devil has the ability to choose the good, but neither the desire nor the inclination to study for that exam, so to speak. So Origen and Holiday, whom we mentioned earlier, does a really nice job explicating this, makes this interesting distinction between choosing to act for good or evil by virtue of one's nature or because of one's nature. And this has to do a lot with the idea of habituation. How off, if you keep making the wrong choice, in other words, you're kind of making it harder and harder for yourself to, to make the right choice. You know, you, did, you, did you keep studying? Did you build the habit of studying for that physics exam? Well, then when it's the final, if you haven't been practicing studying, then it's really hard to figure out how to study for the first time because you're so used to, you know, um, watching YouTube videos of really cute bunnies, which I do highly recommend, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you make of that? I think what's interesting about it, and it sort of relates to what you're saying, like um, using this faculty for moral deliberation changes who you are. So if you don't right. use it, that changes who you are. If you do use it, it changes It changes your nature. It changes your, like, sort of your basic capacities that 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 ought to um the usin to like function um and so it, it your what you do sort of at the front of your head affects what is going on at the back of your head so to speak wow uh, very well put so uh origin argues that jesus is human fully human as you know people would later theologians after him would later specify and so jesus must have the ability through human freedom because he's a human to do evil, but his nature was so habituated to choosing the good that choosing evil became totally impossible for him. He could, he effectively would not choose evil. He technically had that capacity, you might say. And it's the exact opposite for Satan. So the point for for Satan is that he is so habituated to choosing falsely that it affects his his dispositions and his instincts. Um, a sentence really jumped out at me um, pertaining to some of the big themes of the pod, uh, like the aforementioned trap of freedom, the appar- the apparatus for producing blameworthiness and preserving God's innocence that Adam Kotzko, uh, you know, laid out so clearly in the Prince of this world. Um, but uh, holiday writes, even though the devil deceived himself, he is in no sense a victim and is culpable for his actions because he technically 
could still admit goodness. And the word technically sort of makes me want to scream here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the diction itself screams apparatus, right? It's just like another, like, you know, mm-hmm. cog. Uh, and this technique technically is for producing guilt in one subject while exonerating the other. There's a lot of screaming going on over there, Klaus. That said, I'm with you. This feels suspiciously like a setup and doesn't sit well with me if we're trying to make the case that God is fully just, right? Because we are limiting the the room uh, in which Pharaoh could make choices. So that that diminishment of Pharaoh's freedom, even if it technically exists, doesn't feel like it is enough to render God truly just, perhaps. But the idea of habituation, I does I do think helps. Um, it's not that we lose our freedom entirely. It's that we shape ourselves, our psyches, our souls, through the lives we live and the choices we make such that we maintain freedom, but we aren't likely to exercise it. And so if anyone's responsible for our diminished freedom, it's less God and it's more on us. So I think that does help his argument. Yeah, and one of the things, if we bring it back to the devil for a second, and we're thinking about the fall um, and the, the, the dragon and, and everything. One of the things I always wonder about in all of these sort of theoretical and mythological accounts of the devil is how hard did God try to get him back, if at all? Like, you never hear at all about God, like, trying to, like, well, like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. Like, God's too austere. God's too proud. Maybe too distracted at the wheel to be like, hmm, my first officer, Riker, is flipping out. Maybe I need to set phasers for stun, call Beverly Crusher, the Holy Spirit, of course, and sort this all out. <laughs> I didn't have, I did not have to Google Beverly Crusher, and I did not think she was Deanna Troy, just oh, so man. you know. Talk about heresy here. Yeah, I know. I feel really bad about that. Well, this I love this question that you pose, Klaus, because it makes me think of the prodigal son, uh, and it makes me think of the Good Shepherd. These are stories from the gospel in which Jesus is describing God's interest in the one who got away, that one sheep that gets lost. God will forsake the entire flock, go find that sheep and rescue it. And it's like, where was God, the Good Shepherd? You know, certainly in the accounts we get of that, um, the two stages of the angelic creation and fall followed by the human creation and fall in those other it's a little easier for me to think about origins world is so weird with its non-chronology that i sometimes struggle with these details but wherever the fall of whenever we think of the uh the devil's creation and into material or, or fall into materiality as leviathan happened exactly it nonetheless still seems the case that god had an opportunity to go after in this in this world god had the top the opportunity to go after the devil and kind of doesn't um yeah well that takes us to the big question does the devil get to rejoin the party and not just stay awkwardly stewing in the lake of fire what happens ultimately with the devil klaus yeah it's like i feel like the question is like are you going to stop having a temper tantrum like the gargantuan <laughs> batwing toddler you are or come back to your birthday party lucifer the people who really hated Origin accused him of taking the rehabilitation of Satan so far that the Prince of Darkness would eventually become the co-ruler of heaven. Crazy. 
that must have been a really fine batch of apocatastasis they were drinking up in heaven. But seriously, did Origen think everything was going to be hunky-dory in the end? Yeah, that question makes me wonder about Keller's pairing off the link between apocalypse and the end. Like the sort of the sense of like the apocalypse is about everything being over. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, that's another one of the things they slammed Origen with. The eternal recurrence of creation, the infinity of time, space, and everything. Because that did not jibe with the way they were envisioning the kind of chronological um, setup of creation and the world and the end of time. It just didn't fit at all. You know, what happens if there are multiple worlds, etc., um, which they also accused him of, by the way. But there is one thing that the tradition and origin are really big on considering the end of, and that is death with a capital D. What's that all about, Klaus? Um, yeah, I think it, it takes us back to, to Paul, and it takes us back to the way powers and principalities get personified and the way death yes. gets personified. Um and I, once I was I was a kid and it was like it was I think it was I think it was a Sunday it was after church, uh, and I had a friend who had been uh, reading the Bible very closely, which was something as a as a as a Catholic preteen was not never exactly encouraged. Uh, but was telling <laughs> me how, how death was going the last thing to die, uh, and I remember being a little weirded out by the sense of like death dying, and I'm like this is a strange this is a strange story, um, and he was very <laughs> adamant about it. Um, but yeah, uh, Origen writes in uh, On First Principles 3 that death is not even really destroyed, but, quote, ceases to be an enemy. Now, interestingly, Origen equates this personified death with the devil in his commentary on Paul's Romans. Uh, so that seems to be an interesting connection that's being made there between death and the devil. Uh, and so that does seem to be a clue that Satan isn't simply obliterated or burned up in the lake of fire, um, but that there's something else going on there. Yeah. So the devil, quote unquote, ceases to be an enemy. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Do we have an undevil? Do we have a friend? Like, what is a non-enemy, non-devil? The great Irish theologian of the 6th century, John Scotus Eriugena, was someone who also experimented with the idea of apocatastasis, and in his manuscripts of On First Principles, seems to have had a version, copied out, right, remember we're in manuscript land here, where the devil was directly written, like the word devil, diabolus, was directly written in place, of, well, not diabolus, we're in Greek. I don't know. Is it the same? I forgot, Klaus. Do I think he would have been reading the Rufinus, but yeah, I, I think it would have been the Diabolus then. If it's you think he would have had the Latin? I've forgotten. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, his manuscript of On First Principles had the word devil in place of where most of the manuscripts had the word death uh, in this quote that death would cease to be an enemy that Origen wrote. But does Origen really think that God is going to throw open his arms to the devil, his long-lost buddy? Yeah, and you brought up the, the the parable of the prodigal son, and it did get me thinking about like how well maybe all of history isn't about Jesus and it's about the devil. It's about the devil being saved as the prodigal son. Like I think Whoa. it's kind of a beautiful way to read. I mean, it's, it's it's maybe a little disturbing, but it's like if you take that non-linear approach. Then it's like this was all right. This was all caused by the passion of Christ, uh, but like it, 
it's all maybe all of history is the story of the good shepherd reclaiming the lost sheep who is satan i don't know i think i think it's i think it's pretty cool so um, it sort of flips around that like angelic and human uh realities we kind of envision that when we talked about the angelic fall and the angels and the demons as this kind of dream world that mirrors or mimics the human world which is the real world right the important one but what if what if it was all a dream, Klaus? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm seeing I'm seeing things in my timeline about how maybe the simulation's real, that everything is a computer simulation. Um, but anyway, we have like, we're we're having our like sort of like feel good Charlie Stang moment with Origin, where it's like, man, the yes. devil's gonna be saved, and like he's the prodigal son, and isn't that cool? Um, but in a letter to uh, a letter that we know Origin wrote to a Gnostic named uh, Candidus, he writes that his position about the devil is being really twisted. Um, by his enemies to say that the devil the devil would be capable of salvation and to quote different versions of this letter that we have still origin says which even one who is crazed in mind cannot say so that's like a pretty stark rebuttal of our like uh liberal our bleeding our liberal bleeding hearts yeah, or whatever. yeah. Um, want well Maybe one who is crazed can't say it, but God's wisdom is the foolishness of the world. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, yeah. <laughs> well once we got one scholar, at least, Mark Edwards at Oxford, who, by the way, shout out to him, was generous enough to share some of his scholarship that we had trouble accessing. Edwards offers the interpretation that probably Origen didn't mean that the devil would be partying in the eschaton with the beatified saints, but rather he would finally admit that the war was lost, would submit to God, and would basically be rendered inoperative. I'm going to call this the undevil theory, right? The non-devil, um, as opposed to, you know, co-rulership with Jesus in the end. Like, it's like a devil's a math equation, and then there's a negative yeah. sign outside of it, yeah. Oh my gosh, we keep reducing origin to, like, equal signs and, like... We should teach this to, like, math majors and see if they like it. Okay, anyway. Or, like, uh, yeah, analytic philosophers might be into that, too. Oh, definitely. So, <laughs> so, if the devil is rendered inoperative, if we got the undevil, he wouldn't get the benefits that the saints enjoyed because he hadn't earned them. But he would be conserved somehow. Um, Woof, this language of earning is really interesting. Given, like, doctrines of grace, I'm not sure, like, how I feel about that yeah uh, i know but it goes back to right? the free will stuff i mean it, it, because it, oh if yeah if he doesn't choose the good ever but is you know redeemed as a kind of effect of the apocatastasis then yeah it it raises hugely difficult questions of free will of grace of um of goodness of choice um yeah it's all in there so what do you think of all this klaus I think that, I mean, the only thing I can say, and, and I really appreciate Mark Edwards sharing that piece, but I think for me, the thing that jives with what Bear was saying was that the beginning is this fall from pride and that the end pride is humbled and there's sort of a unity there. Uh, what do I think about it theologically? Um, yeah, I, I wonder about the sort of um, almost like preschool morality of like, well, you don't get the popsicle because you didn't earn it kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it reminds me of, like those debates people have uh i feel like at like youth groups or something where like oh do you think uh do you think like like hitler would be ever be forgiven in hell or something you know these sort of like oh like you think no one should be punished oh you're like a you, you think that the the police in prison should be abolished like but what about what about really bad people and it reminds me of that mm -hmm. kind of that kind of morality and um part of me wants to say that like maybe 
even as we can't really grasp the breaking with linearity, like the linear historical chronological time, like that, the kind of the breaking of the hierarchy might also be implied in this kind of vision of uh, apocatastasis, which I'm going to keep saying the way I want to. Thank you. Do it. Do it, Klaus. You're wrong, but keep doing it. <laughs> the idea that, like, everyone, like, we're, we're trying to evaluate apocatastasis pronounced however you want to. Um, it does remind me, like, and we're like, oh, like, like we think of Julian of Norwich, maybe, or you think, like, you know, uh, you know, everything will be will be well or whatever. Uh, we think everything will be, you know, God will be all in all in apocatastasis in, in origin. Um, it's like, oh, well, this is like a really like kind of cute and cuddly version of Christianity. There's no hell. Uh, it, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, it, it, there is this sort of uh, liberal Christian uh, appeal. Um, but I, just to sort of like sketch out the maybe the, the negative side of that for one second. It reminds me of something a Jewish friend's father used to say in the face of like catastrophe and death. At least we'll all be one in Christ, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously, ironically. And this, this, this joke sort of gets at the abiding sort of almost monomaniacal, monomaniacal metaphysics that the tradition's capable of, where it's like it's all about, you know, it, it all happened because of the passion. Like everything's about the passion. It all, you know, and everything will be, everyone will be one in Christ. The answer uh, is 64, Klaus. It's 64. Yeah. It's the passion, okay? Yeah, it's a, a Nintendo 64. Uh, even at its most forgiving there's like this incredible condescension to even this kind of universalistic salvation theory. And maybe I'm just like a, a whiny snowflake. Uh, but yeah, it, I don't know. That's, that's where I go when I, when I get to thinking about evaluating uh, this idea. I mean, first of all, absolutely. You're a whiny snowflake, but so am I. So that's why we do podcasts together. Um, but I think you're this critique of, you know, at least we're all one in Christ in this monomaniacal, you know, here's the answer uh, version of Christianity gets at the problem of, of theorizing Christianity uh, so much on the afterlife, leaning so hard on that when you get asked, well, what about the problem of evil, etc. Even though what we can reconstruct of Origen's account of the afterlife is, I would argue, more compelling than that of many other early Christian writers, at least the version I'm trying to read of his account of the afterlife, it is pretty easy to add it to the pile of wait until heaven for justice theologies. And here we get to what I'm both attracted to in Origen and also sort of where I see him as cheating a little bit. It's a kind of sleight of hand that he does when he undoes time or chronological time by leaning on God's eternal nature. And that's meant to solve a lot of thorny issues like theodicy, um, you know, otherwise known as the problem of evil. Hey, since God doesn't do time like we do, then the apocatastasis or apocatastasis, is already here slash done. Therefore, stop whining about war, famine, cancer, etc. Why does this feel like an episode of Nailed It, the theology edition? Uh, right? It just seems suddenly so mm. cheap and so um, quickly put together. Now, on the other hand, if you accept the existence of unbearable tragedy in the world and the existence of a God who redeems the world through Christ, and I get that I'm asking a lot here, Klaus, uh, then do you think that apocatastasis in particular is a bad way to posit the kind of end of time consummation of all things? Like, putting aside my quibble about God's eternal time as a cop-out, is apocatastasis worse than a linear, than a more traditional linear model where there's creation, you know, time, and then the apocalypse, um, and less of this Neoplatonic return to spirits contemplating God. Is this any worse than other sort of afterlife-focused versions of Christianity, would you say? Um, I think, I think probably not. Um, 
I guess my my th- the thing I come back to when you're saying the thing that attracts you is the way that uh, Origin tries to get out of the linearity. It's dialectical, right? Like you don't get out of it without having it, right? <laughs> and so like that's the yep. that's the problem. <laughs> yes, is that it's 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 it, like the linearity is still uh, you know it's still alcohol It's still like sort of encased in that in that in that whole. Uh, you don't get that infinite view without first having the uh, the linear version that you have to break apart and then you know sort of uh, repiece together in a circular puzzle. Um, so that's what some, one thing that st- stands out to me is that you actually, even though we do have a rejection of the linearity, it's still conserved. Um, and so I don't actually, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe, uh, without it, you get no friction. You get no, there's, there's none of the, the payoff of the God's eye view. You still need the human. You still, you, it's like the, it's like, uh, it's like the, you know, hypostatic union. You still need like the fully human and the fully God for it to work. Um, right. So yeah. It's sort of like, uh, I think we keep running against the point where when we try and get into the God's eye view, even origins, you know, relatively unique theology, it just kind of breaks your brain at a certain point And you're like, okay, but again, cancer, like, how does this, yeah. how does this fix yeah. things again? Um, right. And so I think that that critique remains um, a troubling one, even when there are lots of, you know, responses we can find in origin for, well, this is what the eternal looks like. And this is how it's breaking into the world and breaking apart things like time and justice in the way that you're thinking of it. So, well, I want to jump back before we get too high into the cosmos to the idea of the salvation of the devil, you know, get down to concrete things like the salvation (laughs) of the devil. Down to breast tacks, yeah. Now, (laughs) I know, I know, Origen didn't actually say that the devil will be saved. but it did look like at one point he said the devil could be saved. Had the, you know, posse, right, in the Latin, like, is able to be saved. It's the devil's um, fault that he's not being saved. <laughs> exactly. That's, I think that's actually the closest to his view. Yeah. Um, but And to some extent, this sounds like a deliberate misreading of his works on the part of his critics, um, right? My question is, why is the idea of the devil's salvation, even if it's not one that... that Origin was saying he's not saying the devil's going to be saved that's the end universalism all the way but like let's back up and wonder why is that idea so threatening to the powers that be why was everyone so upset about that Klaus yeah I think I mean I think just to be to be basic uh, you don't see a lot of evidence for it in the, the biblical text that we talked about in our first season uh, you get a lot of Revelation 19 with the, the beast being thrown alive into like a fire that burns with sulfur. So it doesn't sound a ton like salvation to me, but I mean, yes, but let's just say allegorical interpretations like the ones that origin offers, uh, give you a lot of different ways to read this and other passages. I think more broadly, it struck these folks, the, you know, these critics of origin as antithetical to the basics of the faith that the devil could be saved. Call me crazy. But it seems like the devil would be the very last rational creature to be saved. So that means we're now talking about an endgame where literally everyone makes it back to God to participate in the all in all. Okay, I'm with you so far, but on what grounds would the devil be saved? In other words, what accounts for salvation of anyone if even the devil has a chance? I mean, a deathbed confession for an entity who doesn't die? I admit it's getting a little weird here. At the very least, though, this lays the groundwork for a much more sympathetic view of the devil, I would say. 
Now we have someone who isn't trapped by his own choices into a fixity, difficult to parse from a complete lack of freedom. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting about that is like, we go back to that argument from Holiday, where it's like, well, it becomes functionally impossible on yes. or, th- these different from Periarchon, like uh, for the devil to make the right choice because of the the first choice cascading into these habits, and then like it's like, well, like technically there is some potential there that's dormant um but it's very difficult to activate and of course like but again like i think what you're saying like it's very difficult to activate but we're talking about a long durée here and this is you know uh, this is god in eternity and i think what you're saying is true that the devil's gonna be the last person to be saved or rehabilitated or deactivated or whatever. Maybe, maybe we're all going to be deactivated. Maybe that's the best we can hope for is deactivation. I don't what know. If that, uh, what if that's the restoration of all things is deactivation. It's, we're sounding very like Giorgio Agamben here again, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I think that that's, that's what I would say is that it's, we, you have to wrestle with the, the deathbed confessional, like the final moment of activating that potentiality. Like, again, like, when's it going to happen? And then we can we can sort of have origin be like, oh, well, like, let's smush the linear the linear time into a circle. And it's like, it's always happening. And it happens forever from now. Well, Klaus, I'm glad that we solved all the problems of Christian theology. We have determined exactly what origin thought and how we feel about it. Uh, chronological time is ended hereby forever. And the devil will slash won't be saved. And we're all going to be deactivated in the end. So... <laughs> Thanks for bearing with with us, and thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.